Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Save big money on your outdoor project now at Menards. We have everything you need to keep your outdoor power equipment running smooth so you can keep that lawn in tip-top shape or enjoy some time on your boat. Right now, all FVP, lawn and garden, and marine batteries are on sale through May 5th. Check out our entire selection of FVP batteries today and view our weekly flyer on Menards.com for more great deals. Save big money at when I was two years old, when I was dedicated to the cause of Lucifer, I was at that point a generation witch. I was laying there, practically, and I had her hold me as if I was me. I couldn't talk, I couldn't open my eyes, I, I believe my eyes were going back in my head. There was evidence of human sacrifice on this fight. One of my first questions I asked was, God, is there evidence? I need to say something witty or uh, kind of crazy, <laughs> like "Hey, babe," kind of like Jeff on the Leisure <laughs> Hour, like "What's going on, Roberino?" Something like that. But I always try to find a way to <laughs> bring it in. I guess. Can, can we all have like Brooklyn <laughs> code names? Sure. Well, what's a Brooklyn code name? Like Tony uh, and Tony and it, yeah, like <laughs> Tony, <everybody> Tony, <laughs> Petey and Bali. <laughs> Tony Baloney breath. <laughs> like, like every every time you watch a Marky Mark movie, like they call- <laughs> a Marky Mark movie, it takes place in Boston. Boston. Oh yeah. Whoops. Not Brooklyn. Boston. Get mixed up. Ge- ge- geographically mixed up. There. Everybody gets their own the the the, the departed nickname. Is that what you, what yeah. You there you go. <laughs> Don't you watch a Marky Mark movie? <laughs> it's Mark Wahlberg. He's a serious actor. <laughs> Happy New Year, guys. It is uh, January the 3rd as we record this on Conspiranormal. First episode of 2016. And 
Happy to be here. We got, uh, of course, producer Rob in the house. Always. Whoop, whoop. And it's your host, Adam, the same guy it's always been. And over here is right next to me is Mr. Lukey Duke. Turbo. That's right. Turbo, <laughs> turbo slut himself. At, at radio friendly. <laughs> and we got a special guest on the show. I don't know if he wants to talk or not, but it's uh, Debo over here. How's it going? Good friend of Luke's. And we used to work together the old, at the old Biggie frame back in the day. Tons of fun. <laughs> yeah, tons of fun. <laughs> Oh man! So how was uh, how was New Year's, Lukey? How was Christmas, man? Did you Saturnalia, the feast of Mithras? Did you sacrifice any animals? I couldn't this year. My <laughs> girlfriend would get mad at me. So too, uh, much, too much blood in the house or yeah, something. All all family stuff, man. I had to had to endure it. A lot of driving. I'm glad it's over. But it was fun. Yeah, it was kind of like fun. Fifty people you got to go see like every <laughs> Christmas, right? Yeah, uh, when that's that's a that's a part of getting old. Like when you get old, you just want all of the younger people to come see you. And that, that's like your whole initiative in life. After <laughs> come see me, please. Until you're the, the patriarch of the family, and then you know you have a gathering of forty children and grandchildren, and everyone comes to your house and cooks, and you just kind of sit there in right. your chair and eat. And- yeah, you you just smile at everybody because at some point you can't hear anymore. So right. really looking forward to those days. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you had like a you had like a down home country Christmas, like for the with your girlfriend and I did everything and yeah, we ate we ate the traditional meals all day long, you know, ham, eggs, and wait, that was Christmas. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It all blurs together. Right. Well, your New Year's, did you get rowdy, man? I did. Yeah, we went to uh, we went to the hippie house and partied over there. The hippie house. The, hip- the hippie house. Uh, well, I mean. <laughs> exactly like it sounds. It's just a, it's a bunch of hippies that listen to the Grateful Dead, and uh, they're they're all super cool. I mean, the, super nice people give you the shirt off their back. These weren't the same people that had that put on Circus O Gay, right? No, no, no. These, <laughs> these are, are but, totally different. But people. they would be at that party. <laughs> they probably just be kind of stoned in the background, right? They would be right. Missing, missing yeah, they'd have their own little their own little click in the corner, all just passing the bong back and forth on the couch. <laughs> <laughs> we we don't condone that, by the way. No, right? right family right, friendly, right. family fr- family <laughs> friendly show. Exactly. Well. Rob, how about yourself? How was your Christmas? Uh, Christmas was really good. I got a I got a bottle of whiskey and a shop vac, so I got drunk and cleaned the studio. Hey, that's a gift that he's yeah. on giving is a shop vac. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. We we could see like obviously how much love Rob puts into this place too. Every time we're in here, things are moved around and decorations and lights. I and, hung a new poster up today. Yeah, I see yeah, that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> M thirty two. How was New Year's Eve for you? New Year's Day? Uh, it was it was lame. It was. Lame. I'm I'm getting old. It was Mine like was lame I, too. Yeah, I, I came home and it was like a struggle just to stay awake till midnight. You know, I, I I had the hardest time finding Nashville's New Year's thing on TV. I thought for sure like one really? of the local channels would be broadcasting live from downtown. There's multiple stages and all this music and all this. One would think we're right? gonna compete with the rest of the world as far as New Year's mm-hmm, Eve parties mm-hmm. goes, and then there's nothing. You couldn't find it anywhere. Yeah, this was supposedly a big deal this year. That's yeah, was, weird. Yeah, it was like a record number of people again, and so I watched New York's thing because I couldn't watch Nashville's thing, and it was a struggle. Which is delayed, like, by the way, yeah. when you think about it, because of the time difference. It got to, like, I watched the ball drop, and I pretty much got up and went Passed straight out. to bed. Was, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I, I was working that night. It's always a good night to be making deliveries, so I was actually work- I, I delivered uh, the last delivery I took was at, like, 
close to one thirty in the morning to somebody named Cam Daddy in a hotel. Hermitage keeps it classy. It was either the extended stay or uh, Hermitage Inn. Yeah, no, no, no. We don't go to the Hermitage Inn. It was. (laughs) I'm sure everybody did not Nashville for all our people and listen to us in Russia. But uh, we, uh, yeah, it was just one of the crappy hotels on the on the little old Hickory Boulevard strip there. Gotcha. It was, you know, it it was classy. Made pretty good money, so not not complaining too much. Daddy. Although I did have to open the next morning, that wasn't very much fun. So. But anyway, uh, that's just evil. Yeah. Well, I got there about ten thirty, so it wasn't that that bad. Oh, you know, I, I had to work too. Oh, good. Well, good, good, good. I'm, I'm <laughs> glad about that. Um, about a month or so ago now, we had on the show Rebecca Roth, who we talked about nine eleven. And the conspiracy there. She was the former flight attendant that wrote the books Methodical Illusion and Methodical Deception. And Dr. Future sat in with us on that one. And that, I feel like that was one of our best interviews. Uh, yeah, that was a good show. But recently, there's been some controversy over her. And I kind of want to take the next few minutes and explore kind of like this controversy that's been going on with Rebecca Roth. And this idea that people are accusing of her of saying things and are actually saying that being someone that she's not or using an assumed name. So I want to kind of start with, uh, well, what I kind of, for lack of a better term, think is the anti-Rebecca Roth. Uh, this is from jamesperloff.com. He is a 9-11 truther. I don't really know a lot about this guy, but he seems like he could be a, a good potential guest for the show. Um, I'll kind of skip over his little blurb about himself here. Although he did write a book called shadows of power, which seems kind of interesting. Um, so he talks about being a nine 11 truther and we'll start up from here in all those years. I've never written a negative article about someone else in alternative media doing so can play into the PTBs. That's power that be powers that be divide and conquer strategy. However, today I'm making an exception. When Rebecca Ross methodical illusion appeared a year ago, I rejoiced a flight attendant joining the truth movement, a nine 11 truth movement. I heard her impressively interviewed on the Hagman and Hagman report. I personally commended her for her book to which she cordially replied, gave it to five star Amazon review linked to her from this website and recommended her to radio hosts. I knew. I was therefore surprised in August to receive an unpleasant email from Roth directed against myself. Since the email was private, I kept my reply factually debunking her allegations private also. However, I resolved that she took her accusations public. I would also go public so people could see precisely what had been said and decide the matter for themselves. I did not hear back from her. I did, however, do something I'd never done with anyone before, removed Roth from this website's links page. Incidentally, Roth's website links to nobody. I don't quite understand what he's trying to say there. I have to admit. I'd almost forgotten the episode until a couple of weeks ago when a truther friend sent me a video of Jim Fetzer. We know that name well here. 
interviewing Alan Powell about Roth, a major focus, the uncanny resemblance between Roth's voice and that of a Monica Gaynor who pitches doTERRA essential oils on a show called Fix Your Health. That's spelled P-H-I-X, okay, as in prescription. My friend had begun listening to the middle, in the middle of the Fetzer interview, thought she was hearing a clip of Roth and was soon to learn it was Gaynor. I suggest starting around the 13 minute mark and decide for yourself. Then he has a video of Jim Fetzer. Also the voice of Michael Harris, the fix your health man introducing Gaynor markedly resembles Ross radio co-host, co-host Ramjet. For those who consider the similarities coincidental, turn to the acknowledgments at the back of Methodical Illusion. Among the three there, Roth includes the Fix Your Health team. Methodical Illusion also works in doTERRA. On page 15, he says, I must interject. Products do require marketing, and I'm not going to read this part because this is just more about uh, criticizing their product, which has really nothing to do with, with the rest of this. More importantly, if they, if as they contend, Roth doubles as Monica Gaynor, credibility issues arise. Here's how Roth's book introduces her. I enjoyed a nearly 30-year career working as both a flight attendant and an international purser. I was trained as an emergency medical technician and served as a volunteer firefighter. Here's Michael Harris introducing Gaynor, Condensed for Brevity. Let me share with you a little about Monica. She has studied or been involved in natural healing methodologies for nearly 30 years. Uh, blah, 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 blah. I'm not going to read that part. I'm not suggesting Rebecca Roth couldn't simultaneously maintain two careers. Many people, myself included, have done that, but the achievements, masteries, claim for Gainer sound rather extensive for a career flight attendant. And personally, if I had very many well-known NBA players as clients, I doubt that I'd need a second job. Talk about this Monica Gainer, who they think Rebecca Roth is, having clients that are in the NBA. That was in the previous paragraph. Being a Bostonian. There you go. Boston. Boston. I'll observe that Monica is the Boston accent version of the word moniker, meaning name or alias, and Gaynor carrying its own implications is much more typically spelled Gaynor, G-A-Y-N-O-R, as with the actress Misty Gaynor. If Roth is only, as she says, devoted to truth, why market products under a false name? Some may say she has to protect her identity so the CIA won't bump her off. Okay, maybe that can fly for 9-11, but for essential oils... Essentially, incidentally, a pen name won't bamboozle model surveillance agencies like the CIA or NSA. Some say the rarely photographed Roth wears glasses and somewhat frumpy hairstyle or a wig for a safety disguise. But does Methodical Illusion really contain assassination bait? It's a novel mostly without real names like Bush, Cheney, or Rumsfeld. In the end, the hero is the president himself, a Speaker of the House turned president by default. Methodical Illusion's faith in the U.S. government's Self-correcting capacity hardly seems like something that would put you in CIA crosshairs, though I've heard her sharply condemn the government on radio. According to Fetzer, when Dennis Chimino, a former Navy electronics troubleshooter, interviewed Roth, Chimino noticed Roth's call traced to Langley, Virginia, home of CIA headquarters. That's according to Fetzer. Methodical Illusion consumes some 160 fiction pages before really addressing 9-11, when it does, much of it retreads work of others. Pages 209 to 212 contain a thinly disguised rephrasing of James Corbett's video, 9-11, The Truth in Five Minutes. Certainly, Roth offers special flight attendant insights that are fresh. She has noted, for example, that cockpits had pilot axes that box cutters would have been no match for. She also has a completely unique take on the plane's fates. 
I do not concur with the suggestion that Roth was ever a flight attendant. She's too well-versed in that profession, and a fake would easily risk exposure on radio. Nevertheless, on re- over recent days, several truthers besides Fetzer and Powell have noticed a dark side, although Roth has cried trolls that label that label is wearing thin. On December 23rd, radio host Pete Santilli announced he is removing his interview with Roth from his archives due to too many unanswered questions about her. Santilli says he has never done this with any other guest. Roth moved to TalkNetwork.com, but the network has now announced that Rebecca Ross show is no longer carried by TalkNetwork.com. We wish Rebecca, or whatever her real name is, the greatest success somewhere else. On December 29th, Natural News renounced Roth as a possible government plant, said Mike Adams. Observing her behavior, we came to find that she's an expert in infiltration and provocateur-type operations, getting groups of people to turn on each other and causing chaos inside the truth movement. A leader in exposing Roth is Kurt Haskell, famed as attorney turned truther after personally witnessing the underwear bomber fiasco. He now lives in Costa Rica, hosting a show called Real Investigations. Haskell goes into depth about Roth through various aliases and background. Okay. Now. Here's the deal. I don't necessarily agree with most of that article. Uh, that that was the kind of like the fairest that I think that I could have found about this whole issue. And that wasn't biased, I think, to either side, although still... Just laying out the issue itself. Yeah, still laying out the issue. Uh, I'm sure there's still a little bit more bias there. You know, well, let's do this. Okay, I have a clip of Rebecca Roth, or whatever her name is, saying, talking about, this is from her radio show, and she put out a 14-minute video on YouTube. This is about a little less than three minutes of it, and I want to, uh, the audience and us to listen to this, and let's hear her explanation, and she's going to come out and say, although she doesn't come out and say it, she does show it in the video. But let's listen to that now. When you hear the beep, turn the page. (laughs) Reading Rainbow. I would just like everyone to know that in the fall of 2014, I had finished writing a book that exposed what happened to the planes and passengers on 9-11. I discovered this using government data and also using my 30-year airline career, knowing the FAA hijacking protocols that were not followed by the flight attendants or the pilots, and continuing to look and using uh, information that I knew about cell phones, etc. Well, I sat on that information in that book for nearly two years, and then I decided to release it all in this novel. I chose to use the pen name Rebecca Roth to help protect me, uh, from those who might do me harm, because I knew that the information that I had uh, was rather explosive. Understandably so, you think about people like Michael Hastings, Andrew Breitbart, Art Bell, who just recently shut down his show uh, for fear of his life and harassment by these trolls. So, I knew that I had disclosed information in this book and that my sequel would come out that were potentially risky to my own life. 
As a matter of fact, when I do interviews, almost every person who's ever interviewed me in the last 14 months has asked me if I fear my life from the government. Never in my wildest dreams did I think that the threat would come from those who profess to want to know the truth about 9-11. We often refer to them as 9-11 truthers. For the past 13 months, and particularly the past several weeks, the Internet truther trolls have been attempting to expose me as a fraud, and they have made claims that I never flew as a flight attendant and a purser in order to discredit my airline career. I have said in my books, everything that I've said in my books is true, and I can only imagine that they are actually working to help protect the real perpetrators of 9-11 that I have exposed. There is no other explanation. So how wrong they are, because things are going to come out again in another novel. They have been anxiously engaged in uncovering every aspect of my personal life. Some of it's true. Most of it is not. They put the lives of innocent people and friends at risk, and I just cannot abide by that. They have crossed a line, so I have decided to come out underneath the pen name Rebecca Roth and tell you my real name and prove to you once and for all that I'm not a fraud. I'm not a CIA agent, as they claim. I'm not a chemist working for a six-year-old essential oil company. I am not a chemist at all. I was a purser, and I did fly for nearly 30 years, retiring in 2004. Okay, so cut it off there a little bit because... I'm kind of an idiot, but it said it said 2004 was when she was when she retired there at the end. Uh, now she doesn't come out and say, and, and I'll, I'm going to have a link to this video on the show notes, and people can watch this if they want. She doesn't come out and say who she is, but she does show uh, some materials. Uh, so her name, is she saying her name is Corey Ann, spelled K O R E. A-N-N, Ashley, A-S-H-L-I. That's what she's saying her name is. She has some, uh, she used to work for Northwest Airlines is what she shows on the video. And she has this all kind of laid out on the video. Cards, uh, some flight attendant stuff, uh, name tags, stuff like that. Why would she bother, even bother at this point, giving her real name? I wouldn't. I would continue okay, to well, keep the, a moniker. Right. Well, okay. This this is the issue. Okay. And I want I want to read what she says on the on the notes here of her um, video. She says, "Since the release of my first novel, Methodical Illusion, I have been gang stopped by a group of internet trolls. They have accused over a dozen of people of being me, post people's home addresses on the internet, and endanger my fa- friends and family." They claim I never worked as a flight attendant and that I am a fraud. Well, here is your proof of what airline I worked for for 31 years and my rank as flight attendant and purser. They also claim that I am a secret agent for the CIA, but clearly anyone who has read my books knows that it is insane to even suggest. They claim I am a chemist, and that is also untrue. I started my flight career in 1973 and left in 2004. I wrote my novels exposing the truth that I had discovered using U.S. government data and nearly a terabyte of Freedom of Information Act releases that any interested 9-11 researcher could have requested they didn't, which she talked about on the show. 
Inside the government documents, I uncovered shocking information I knew would endanger my life and my family and friends. I chose to keep myself out of the picture. After all, it was all about the truth about 9-11, not about me. Trolls, however, think differently. They think if they can claim I was never an airline employee, that's what I wrote in my novels, could not be real or true. Perhaps they are working for the real perpetrators of 9-11. They have not just attacked the messenger to kill the message, but in their incompetence, they have endangered women that probably don't even know the books exist. Nobody should tolerate this type of behavior, and I do not. I have legal counsel and will pursue this as a legal matter should this character assassination over two novels continue. Okay. Luke, I want to ask you a question. Okay. Define an internet troll for me. An internet troll is someone who gets a rise out of, uh, tries to get a rise out of people, basically. I mean, that's the easiest way to put it. I mean, okay. And, you know, hurling insults and just um, perpetuating untrue inf- information and harassing okay. people from the safety okay. of a computer. So yeah. so that would apply in her case, even though we know that it's Fetzer and some of these other guys. We know the names of these guys that are saying that she's not who she really says she is and all this. So would you would you consider that still a troll? I just want to know if her verbiage is correct. Yes, because. I, I think it's likely that the people that are trolling here are um, are making up things, you know, just unfounded claims. Right. So, un, you know, unfounded claims is, is trolling. Okay. Well, Synonymous. Okay. So here here's the here's the crux of this, right? She is using a pen name. How's that even how's that unusual? It's not at all. You know, using a pen name to write. I mean, you know, of course, Mark Twain comes to mind. We all know that wasn't his name. J.K. Rowling has been mentioned in the, in this respect. We all know that's not her real name. Right, right. And when you're talking about someone who's divulging sensitive material that they think is important to a government conspiracy, like, it's not at all unthinkable or unheard of. Right. Exactly. The thing is, is that the 911 here's here's the two here's two things the 911 truther community is so paranoid that this lady comes in with a pin name and they just automatically just kind of attack her now in fetzer's defense somewhat Apparently, she did say some things about him and said that he was a drunk and all this kind of stuff. And that's kind of what set him off and kind of set him on this path with his guys to try to find out what was going on here. Um, to be fair to him. But to be fair to her, when you have this kind of like paranoia within this community, it's like. And, and and it's and it's reasonable to think that they would be paranoid, okay? Because there have been, you know, agent provocateurs, government spies. Those, uh, uh, what is the uh, the FBI program, COINTELPRO, which we talked a little bit about that with Craig Ciccone last year. You know, those kind of things do happen. But they have attacked her, and kind of just basically forced her to use her real name. So she can re kind of establish, reestablish her credibility. Right. That's what Luke was getting at there. Like, why even bother? Why even say the real name? 
Well, and I do want to say that, um, I mean, that, you know, we, th- this isn't a job for us. This is, it's more of a civic responsibility that we've all sort of picked up. Yeah. Trying to find the truth and trying to, and it, it's important to, to keep those checks and balances, whether it's checking other people in the community or it's, whether it's, you know, checking the government or whether it's wh- what have you. Trying to get to the bottom of things is important, but there comes a point where it's like, uh, discord and stuff among the community can kind of yeah. yep. just make it that much harder to, to do what we're trying to do. And the same thing happens in the ghost hunting community. We've seen it happen there. Mm. People accusing each other of this, people accusing each other of that. We've seen it happen. And uh, I've seen it happen to the fringe Christian community too. All these different kinds of like this whole flat earth controversy. That's just ridiculous. It, you know, it, it, but it's like it's like first of all, people have no sense of humor. And and second of all, if somebody wants to protect themselves or they want to protect their family or they want to protect the company that they used to work for, that's certainly their prerogative. And even now that she has come out and said what her name is, there's still people in that truther community that are saying that's not her real name. <laughs> that's not her name at all. Her name is blah 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 blah. She's still lying. Well, I, why does she put? Why does she give us a picture of the of her in her flight attendant uniform? You know, it's like, and even, but even it's like it's weird, man. Well, and my point he, is that I, I, even though I I believe that all those people are wrong, I still think it's important to have a whole crap ton of people out there that are wrong because that's the only way that there's a handful of people that are sometimes right. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. But it's like, it's it's like, I really think even if she said, okay, here's a picture of me in a flight attendant's uniform, somebody else will come on the internet and say it was photoshopped. Yeah. You know, so where does it end? Where do you go? <laughs> it doesn't. I mean, you know, it's like there's, and, and there's, and there's egos involved too. People's feelings get hurt. Like, I really think Fetzer, I think his feelings got hurt. And that's what set this whole thing off. Because Fetzer himself has a lot of pull in the community. And her, uh, and I already thought about this, but like Ramjet or whatever, that her little co-host, he said something like that she was, uh, that the reason why this was happening because she was a woman and that she was making all the, all the <laughs> old boys club jealous, you know? That's not going to help. <laughs> you know what? I don't know. There might be something to that. There might not be. I don't know. But it's like, this is kind of the reason why conspiracies are for men. <sighs> yeah. Men this is, only. This is kind of the reason why you kind of like, you know, try to stay out of things like this. Like, look, I, for the record, I support her. She can come on the show anytime she wants. I don't care when she has her new book out, we're going to have her back on. I don't care what, if her name is Rebecca or Corianne or Monica I don't care. Uh, I, I disagree. We, uh, I'm not going to allow her back on unless I see a birth certificate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. G- genetic stool sample or right. something, right? <laughs> I mean, a blood type, a birth certificate, stool sample. You would want something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's how bad this things go, though, man. That's how bad this stuff, this stuff gets. You know what I mean? Like the, like the accusations that go back and forth. And that's why, like, when you get involved with any kind of community like this, 
and and I've gotten involved with like the ghost hunting community and the French Christian community. And it's like, every time there's always somebody coming up against loggerheads and it's like, come on people, you know, try to work together. I mean, damn, you know, I mean, I mean, if there is a government agent, it's kind of like that old twilight zone episode where, uh, people on the, on the street see this, uh, they see a UFO go by and then all of a sudden, like everybody starts accusing each other of the other people of being aliens, you know, <laughs> and, and all of a sudden everybody just starts riding because they all think that every one of the other ones aliens, you well, know, and, and, and then you turn, you, you, you go over to the aliens sitting on the hilltop and they're like, oh, our plan is working perfectly. We're going to turn them all against each other. And that's what that's I was what's, say. That's the kind of stuff that's that, going on. That's what I was to say. The, the, the real enemy, that's what they want is discord and disharmony and right. arguments and Right. And I don't know about her, her phone number being in Langley, Virginia. And I mean, if that's true, but it seems like if she was a CIA agent, don't you think they'd be a little less sloppy than that? They'll have your, your phone number appear is Langley, Virginia. And nothing, (laughs) and nothing about what she's saying seems to be drawing attention away from anything important. Right. It's not like, Oh, everybody on Facebook is posting rainbow flags. Let's focus on that for today. It's, you know, it's, yeah, I don't know. It's a, it, yeah, exactly. And most people aren't going to care, right? Most people are. I mean, she she has her detractors. She has her supporters. You know, and 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 I, and I think one of the things that has happened, yeah, uh-huh. one of the things that has <laughs> happened is that she has she she's probably new at all this, and she's come into this, and all of a sudden people are just attacking her for the supposed pin name, so. I guess that's it on the Rebecca Ross stuff. But anyway, we have uh, coming up Brian Gadawa, first guest of 2016. We're going to be talking to him about uh, the Nephilim Chronicles. And Brian is also a screenwriter in Hollywood, so kind of cool. We're going to have another screenwriter from Hollywood next week. So we're going to call it uh, here for the intro. And uh, we'll be right back on Conspiracy Normal with Brian Gadawa. All right, guys, we're back on Conspira Normal and with the usual crew that you just heard. And we have joining us on the line, we have Brian Gadawa, who we're very proud to have on. I have actually heard of Brian's books, The Chronicles of the Nephilim. I've listened to a lot of his interviews with Derek Gilbert on uh, View from the Bunker. And Brian was always someone that I wanted to get on the show. And then lo and behold, about two months ago, I think now, he contacted us and said, hey, can I come on the show? I'm like, of course. (laughs) So, Brian, welcome to Conspiracy Normal. Thanks for having me, guys. Absolutely. Thanks for being on. Uh, I kind of want to get your background a little bit. Some of the – because you are a screenwriter in Hollywood. Yeah. And I – what – uh, movies have you written what have you worked on out there uh not much <laughs> it's hard to get movies made in hollywood let oh, me tell no you no doubt no doubt uh, but uh anyway uh there's some cool stuff coming down the horizon which we can talk about eventually but um you know what i'm most known for what i'm most proud of is my first movie which was to end all wars and that was back in 2001 you can uh, you can see that on I think Amazon Prime now. Um, 
and I don't know if it's on Netflix or not, but uh, it stars Kiefer Sutherland and Robert Carlyle, and it actually was Kiefer Sutherland's, one of his best roles, in my opinion, and it was the true story of uh, prisoners of war under the Japanese in, in World War II, and if, if you've seen the movie um, uh, Bridge on the River Kwai, the old you know 60s movie, action movie, yeah, uh, this... This was that story, but that story is a very Hollywood version of one little part of the bigger story. We told the bigger, broader story of, uh, you know, of, of the building of the railroad all the way up to the end, you know. And um, uh, anyway, that, that was in 2001, and that, that was sort of the, my first movie and launched me. And, um, but it was such a privilege because I was a, the sole writer on the project because, of course, they couldn't afford anyone else. It was an you know, independent film. And uh, so they couldn't afford anyone else to come back and rewrite it, which is what they do a lot in Hollywood, you know. But in, it, because of that, I was able to really you know, stay involved and see the vision to, to its completion in a, in a real unified way that you can't when you hire all these other guys because this guy's good at comedy that guy's good at romance or whatever adding the various elements uh this guy's you know beefs up the plot but what what can often happen is when people rewrite it is yeah they might add some good element but sometimes they 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 lose that unity of vision that can make something so so powerful and and that's that's what i felt happened with 200 wars and and uh, and since that time i'd made some other independent films uh, you know a couple of horror films uh uh, some documentaries and such. I've directed some documentaries and, um, it's been, it's been slim pickings over the last, you know, 10, 12 years. But, uh, um, in the meantime, you know, sort of in the last five years, uh, and part of my process of, you know, um, I guess expanding my writing, uh, my writing horizons was, you know, I had, there was a couple of years where I had a real couple bad years with my screenwriting, you know, and it's not unusual. A lot of people had that problem. Um, and this is like six years back or so. And, uh, and it forced me to reinvent myself and say, you know, I can't just do the screenwriting thing. I got to do more. And, and, you know, how can I expand my horizons? And that's where I took up novel writing because, because now with the self-publishing revolution, um, you don't have to get a publisher. So if you put all this work into it and they don't pick it up, fine, go out on your own and see if you can get lucky. And, and I did, and it worked. And that was, that was the series launch of Chronicles of the Nephilim. And um, so my first novel was Noah Primeval. That was the first in the series. And what had happened was that so, so now I'm basically, you know, I'm, I'm a writer that does movies, but also novels and, you know, articles and such. And it's actually been a really fun, exciting thing because it's, it's in Hollywood, you know, it, even if you're a successful writer, a lot of movies don't get made. Most movies don't get made. So right. you could be making, pulling in six figures, uh, writing screenplays and never see a movie made. And Th- things, really sit on very, the se- things sit on the shelf for a while out there. Yes. Uh. And sometimes never get made. And so it can be very unsatisfying and unhappy for writers because we writers just want people to see our, you know, to read our stories or hear our stories or see them. And, um, you know, it's not even always about money, although we all want that. Right. But, but uh, anyway, so I know many screenwriters who, who have done really well financially, but they don't get many movies made and they're very kind of unhappy. And so um, while, you know, while you're trying to get these movies made, if you can find an avenue where you can tell your stories and thousands of people will read them, such as self-publishing on Amazon, then that was the uh, a doorway that opened up. And I, at first I just – what was really funny was it all started actually with the screenplay. 
because I, you know, years ago I had started this research on the screenplay for a movie about something no one had ever done before. And it was, there was such cool information on it that no, I'd, no, I'd never seen done before. And that was about Noah, right? And of course, as you know, well, no, uh, Aronofsky's movie came out, you know, last year, couple of years ago, or whatever. Right. And at that time, uh, you know, he was just trying to get it sold or, you know, whatever. It, it didn't come out. So by the time I, I'm working on my screenplay for Noah and I'm going around Hollywood and I don't have a lot of connections, but, um, uh, I eventually found out, of course, that he was working on it. And I thought, well, I don't really have a chance of beating the guy. So, I, you know, why don't I adapt it to a novel and start writing my novels? And um, and then that way I know I will beat him. And I was worried, like, oh, maybe, you know, maybe he has some of these cool things that I discovered, uh, like giants and watchers and stuff. And he kind of did. But, you know, in my opinion, it, it was a terrible job. And, yeah, and giant rock creatures, have, right? Yeah, the giant rock creatures, yeah. yeah. But even then, his his research was just a lot of it was just made up stuff, and I went back to you know ancient Jewish legends and traditions, and and he did a little bit as well. But but he just didn't find the storyline that I found in the Bible that was very very fascinating, and so I was happy about that. But nevertheless, I felt this has to get out. And um, when I did the research on it. You know, reading on the, the the ancient book of Enoch and and the pseudepigrapha and, and all this kind of stuff, and like I said, the other you know legends and such, as well as ancient religions, um, you know, in the Stone Age and before. You know, we're talking Sumer. You know, Sumer is the you know one of the mo- oldest civilizations we know of in Mesopotamia, um, and just studying, finding out about their religions and their mythological beliefs. And I, I realized that there was a package here. So there was something happening. There was an intersection of the Hebrew Bible, the Jewish understanding of the world and cosmos, and the pagan uh, religions around them. There's a, you know, there's a commonality, but there's a difference. And, and that fascinating storyline that Michael Heiser's work opened my eyes to is what became the Chronicles of the Nephilim, which is now eight eight novels, eight complete novels. So you, and that's kind of how that all started. So you had, uh, you got interested in this, in all this writing that screenplay and looking at Michael, at Dr. Heiser's work. Yes. Now, okay. you know, I had, I had always been familiar. Uh, I'm a Christian and I'd always been familiar with the book of Genesis. I love book of Genesis and, and trying to understand what the things mean. But sure. Genesis six, one through four, had always been one of those really bizarre passages that I just I knew was there, but I know that you know we're not we're not always going to figure everything out in the Bible, so it's okay. And I just sort of passed it over because I couldn't didn't make sense to me, you know. And that was when it said the you know the sons of God, these heavenly beings, um, came to earth and mated with the daughters of men, and they bore them the Nephilim, which are the great warriors of old. And and what are the Nephilim and all that stuff? And and I'd heard of some theories, but they just seemed wild to me. Um, and, uh, but when I needed to find out more about that, yes, I started reading Michael Heiser amongst lots of other authors as well. But what I liked about him was he's a scholar, a biblical scholar, and he does believe in the Bible, but he's also very aware and open to scholarship outside the Bible. So he's not like a fundamentalist type and he's very, very informed on the mythology and the ancient Near Eastern background. And that was the doorway that opened up this fascinating storyline that I'd never seen before 
even as a believer reading reading the Bible and stuff. And it was a storyline that that I had to tell the world. And and I thought, oh, this could be three or four books. And I did, little did I know, oh my gosh, as time went on and I did more research, it ended up being, oh my gosh, this covers the whole Bible and even into the New Testament. And um, it's it's a storyline uh, that that is more than just the doctrinal things that, you know, most believers, religious people will tell you. And, right. you know, you've got the standard things of the Bible, you know, whether God's a creator and, and, you know, the, 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 the Jews were waiting for the Messiah to come. And, you know, these are, these are, you know, stuff that we commonly hear, but this thing about the Nephilim in Genesis six, it's not just I found, I discovered it's not just this obscure text that talks about giants, which by the way, when you look into that word Nephilim, the word Nephilim or Nephilim, uh, a lot of people say Nephilim, uh, it actually is a translate transliteration of the Hebrew because they didn't know what to translate it into, so they just translate transliterated it from Hebrew to English. Um, but what the word actually does mean is is giants, and you know there is. Of course, there's a there's a whole big sort of school of interest in giants nowadays. I'm aware of that. But what does that mean to the Bible? Is that just an obscure thing that, you know, oh, yeah, they show up in the Bible and maybe they're myth and maybe they're real. And, you know, but no, there's more to it than that. There's actually a, a thread that goes throughout and it pops up in various places. So when I would read the Bible, I would see these other bizarre passages and again, I would just say, oh, another bizarre passage. But reading Heiser helped me connect them all, and that connection is what I wanted to tell. So my premise of writing Chronicles of the Nephilim was I wanted to retell this storyline by, by retelling – you can't retell the whole Bible, right? Obviously. Right, but right. <laughs> I thought everywhere that giants or Nephilim or the Watchers show up, I want to retell those stories. And because there's not a lot about them, I have to – add a lot of, you know, fictional, creative um, uh, uh, license, right? But my goal was this. I wanted to stay as true and consistent with the Bible as possible because I think people who like the Bible, they, they prefer that. They don't want you going off and making up stuff. They want, to, they want you to stick to it as close as possible, but, but fill in between the lines that we don't know with stories that might make sense and might, might connect the dots, and that's what Chronicles of Nephilim became. And at first, I thought it was going to be a risky venture. Uh, because, and the reason why is because, you know, there's a lot of mythological integration in there. Um, you know, I have – I use fantasy as a genre element. So I'll have things like a giant sea dragon of chaos called Leviathan. I'll have satyrs in right. the storyline and such. And um, my first thought was, look, a lot of religious people who like the Bible, they, you know, they tend to really – poo-poo the idea of mythology, you know, if, if they, I, I, there's all, I know there's all kinds of takes on the Bible. Some people believe it's myth. Some people believe it's literal. Some people believe it's a mixture of both. But, you know, I was a little worried that, you know, the, the, the strong believers might attack it and, and, you know, just hate might work because. Because it has mythological I, creatures in it. And yeah, exactly. It's like but Lord the, of the Rings or Narnia, that exactly, kind of stuff. Yeah. Exactly. In fact, that was my goal was to sort of I want to retell the Bible like Lord of the Rings, you know? And I thought, oh man, that's really risky. But it turns out it wasn't. It turns out that the strong religious believers, Jews and Christians, have loved it because they get it. They realize that what I'm doing is I'm, I'm retelling the stories, 
but I'm, I'm using fantasy as a means to show the spiritual reality of what's going on. I don't know what things really look like in the spiritual realm. We, you know, we don't, and we get glimpses, right? But um, by using that, it allows me to show the spiritual reality behind the historical truth and the mythological stuff. And, you know, I don't see the Bible as being this, you know, like fundamentalists might think of it as just this, this thing that stands out and it's untouched by anything else. And I don't see it that way. I see it as being a product of people who are ancient Near Easterners, just like everyone else. Sure. Therefore, they knowledgeable. They were, were influenced as well as um, influenced <laughs> on or by their surrounding cultures. So they integrate stuff and they change it. To, to meet their own understanding. See, so, so I, I get that. I appreciate that imaginative element. And like I said, the biggest surprise was how the religious community really responded very positively about that. And that was, that was a, real, a real pleasure. Yeah, that's what I like about Heiser's work is about he will put it in the context of the writers of the Bible and what, how they viewed the world and the cultures yes. that were around them. And, and what I wanted to ask you, if you could kind of go through a little bit of the various books, you know, who are the main characters in each books? What's the, what's the title? Uh, what's kind of like the different stages in each? Sure. Sure. That's a, that's a great question. And I'll try to keep it brief and, <laughs> sure, and interesting. Sure. Uh, but like I said, Noah Primeval is the first book. And that was, you know, retelling the story of Noah. And one of the things that I do that I, that I do in the series, I, I love action movies. And look, I'm a screenwriter. So my, my approach to the storytelling is going to be, it, it's going to be a little bit more action oriented. It's not going to, you know, um, maybe briefer, briefer descriptions. I'm not as interested in going to long detailed descriptions of things. Um, so it's for, it's faster paced, you know, that kind of thing. I want the reading of my books to be like you're watching a movie. That's my goal. And um, so that's kind of how I'm approaching it. And therefore, a lot of my heroes are the warriors in the, in the Bible. But what's interesting is there's a, there are people in the Bible that are warriors that most people don't think they are. Noah's one of them. And, and the reason, think about it. The Bible talks about how in Genesis 6, before the flood, it, the, 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 the heart of man was, was, more, was so wicked that every thought in his mind was only evil continually. I mean, that's pretty – and it says that violence filled the earth. So I'm thinking if you're a righteous man in a violent world, you're going to have to be a warrior, right, to stay alive. <laughs> and so I thought, well, Noah wasn't this old white guy with cute little animals that we see on Sunday school walls. Um, you know, no, he was he might have been a warrior. We don't really know. but He might have been. And so I depicted him that way. And and I, I tell the story of, you know, basically Genesis six and and leading up to the flood and how Noah was called and, and how he sort of rejected the call. And, but what I do is I bring the watcher paradigm in and, and this is going to be valid for the whole rest of the series. And, and the watcher paradigm, what I mean by that is, is this is another element, weird element of the Bible that shows up in the Bible, but also other ancient literature. And it's this notion that there are as brief as possible. It's the notion that there are spiritual authorities spiritual entities who are authorities over the nations. And, th and this is something that's in the Bible as well. In Deuteronomy 32, it talks about how um, when God separated the nations at Babel, uh, you know, that, you know, the Tower of Babel and how God divided the tongues and spread man out on the earth. And that's sort of their, the Bible theory for how the origin of the nations came. But those nations that, that talks about in Genesis 11, the 70 nations, 
It's explaining where they kind of basically come from, the Tower of Babel. But what it says in Deuteronomy 32, it says that when God did that, he allotted, and that's a very key word, it's a, it's a land-based word, he, or an inheritance word of land, he allotted the nations under the, the, the sons of God, these, these angelic heavenly beings, but he kept Jacob, or you know, the people of Israel, for himself. And so basically what it's saying there is, look, mankind's so evil, even after the flood, man is evil and builds the Tower of Babel. So if you're going to continue to be evil, he says, basically, I'm going to give you over to these gods, false gods that you're worshiping, but they're actually true spiritual entities of some kind, and they're in authority over you. So the nations kind of have their own authorities. And this isn't, like I said, just a biblical view. This other ancient um, uh, worldviews have, have this. So the, 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 the unique angle I took on my series was I said, well, okay, all, you know, ancient religions had their pantheons of gods, like in Sumer, as well as, uh, you know, um, pick your, you know, Babylon, China, whatever. They all have pantheons of gods, and they all, the gods have different authorities and hierarchies, right? Well, in the ancient uh, Sumerian and Mesopotamian world, each of the cities had their own patron deities or their own patron gods over it, right? It's the right. same concept. And so I thought, what if the gods of the ancient world, you know, that we hear about, we all assume they're mythological. I said, what if they were based on real beings of some kind? Only they weren't real gods like we might think of them. They would have supernatural powers, but maybe they are these sons of God that the Bible talks about, these fallen angels, you know, these angels that fell from heaven. And I said, what if that, what if that they were linked? And so they were like pretending to be the gods type of thing. And so that's, that's the, the premise of what I bring into the whole series. So every series, I've got these watcher gods, these fallen angels who, who the book of Enoch talks about how they, they came down on Mount Hermon and that's in, in, Le, in Lebanon. And, and, um, uh, and when they did, they tried to deceive mankind and, and they also mated with the daughters of men. You get these hybrid, half-human, half-angelic beings. Yes, weird, freaky, I know. But nevertheless, <laughs> um, this is where the concept came from the, of other religions that talked about their gods mating with human beings because there probably was a real incident in the past of some kind that we don't understand fully, but that's, that's where the Bible orients that original historical fall. And so they were the ones that sort of brought about the violence and... and, and you know, violations of, of God's holiness where they, they're uniting heaven and earth in a way that you're not supposed to, blah, blah, blah. And that leads to the evil, and then that leads to the flood. So God basically imprisons all those original beings who fell, but there's still other beings who are around. And so these are the ones that after that flood, who are now over, over the nations. So I tell that story in Noah Primeval. Um, Noah and how it leads up to that. I talk about the watchers and all this stuff. And I talk about this beginning of the seed line. This is the other element of the whole series that, that, that I deal with it. I call it the war of the seed because you see, this is the storyline in the Bible that's kind of underlying everything. And that is in the garden of Eden with the serpent and God curses the serpent. He says, you know, I will put enmity between your seed or your offspring and the seed of the woman, seed of Eve, the seed of her offspring. And he says, you will bite his heel, but he will crush your head. And, and theologians will explain to you, and it's picked up in the New Testament as well, that that is the first messianic promise that God would bring a seed from the woman who would ultimately, you know, uh, crush the head of the serpent, uh, 
the head of the ultimate enemy of man. And, um, and that, and so, so the goal line of these fallen watchers in my storyline is to find that seed in each generation and kill it, stop it right. so that they can stop God's plan. And that is also what the, the Old Testament hints at and stuff, but I'm kind of bringing it more, more to the forefront. So that's sort of the big storyline of the whole thing. And it you know, begins with knowing it ends at Jesus. But the second novel, I go back for a prequel, and I call it Enoch Primordial. And the reason why is because if you, you, your listeners are probably familiar with Enoch, and, and they may be familiar with the, the ancient book of Enoch. And it's not in the Bible, but... It's always been given a lot of respect within the Christian church and the Jewish community as well. Let's um, talk about that a little bit because why the – you know, there, there's a lot of people that have – you know, you have this debate between people that believe and are putting emphasis on the Nephilim and people that don't, especially kind of like the fringe Christian community. And some people believe, you know, like the book of Enoch, we really shouldn't be using it because it's not a biblical book. It's not in the Bible, even though it is in the Ethiopian Bible, by the way, Um, you know, I'm sure. But, uh, you know, let's talk a little bit about how that the Enoch book is kind of like what the veracity of it is and where it's kind of quoted in the Bible. Yes, that's a good question, and I think that there's a renewed interest in the Book of Enoch. Oh yeah, there absolutely is. (laughs) Yeah, I think in a good way, and and in some ways a bad way, because you know people you know go uh, you know out of control with it, in my opinion. But I I came, I come from the past that just didn't give anything value outside of the Bible that talks about religious things, Um, and I, I I no longer have that view in terms of you know I do see value in things that aren't biblical. The Bible is my standard, and it's my ultimate authority, and I'm not ashamed to say that. But I also recognize that there, that doesn't mean that anything else is false. <laughs> and unfortunately, a lot of religious people have that approach to things. And I, come, I came from that, but when I, I came from that background, see, so which is why it's very helpful because I understand that mindset. But when I did the research on it and I, I found out that I had to face my prejudice and say, you know, look, um, the Book of Enoch in particular – uh, and by the way, it's only first Enoch because Enoch has three different, uh, three different books that can, they kind of put all together. And, and those come from varying different periods of history. But the book of first Enoch is the most ancient one. And it actually – the thing that actually sold it for me as a Christian was I'm thinking, OK, well, it's not my ultimate authority. So it's got to it's be in the Bible. you know. But then I realized you know, the book of Enoch, first of all, for those who don't know, it, it, it tells that story of Genesis 6 – in an expanded fashion. So this is where it has much more detail about the giants, about the watchers mating. They, they come to earth, they reveal occultic secrets, uh, drugs, war, you know, and it, it goes into much detail. They start, the, the, their, their offspring are giants that start to eat humanity and they cause, <coughs> they cause a gigantomachy is what's, what the Greeks call it. Yeah. And this is where a lot of people think that, you know, again, the, the, the Greek Titans got their, their notions from, but, um, anyway, so this is a book that, that, that talks about that material and, um, it's consistent and it, it's not always very, I don't, I don't, it's consistent with the Bible, but it definitely expands on it. Okay. So your, your stronger religious people are going to say, no, no, it's not scripture. So I don't believe any of it. Um, but if you follow the history of Judaism and Christianity, you'll find that actually both of those uh have garnered even if, even though they didn't consider it scripture 
they have garnered it with great respect. And, and one of the reasons why is because the New Testament itself quotes the book of First Enoch. So you, you have a dilemma because if you're a person who believes in the Bible, right, and, 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 but then the Bible is quoting from a book, you're going to have to ask yourself and be honest and say, well, if the Bible writers have such respect for it, then certainly I should or I'm not following the Bible, you see. And does that mean it's scripture? No, it doesn't have to mean it's scripture. But my point is that's what opened my mind, you know, as, as a believer in the Bible to be able to consider, you know, there's other literature and it doesn't mean it's all truthful, but, but we can draw from it. And I think that's what's happening now is, is a lot of religious believers are really realizing that that sort of prejudice has blocked us from, from, from other wisdom. And so, um, so nevertheless, I, I don't necessarily consider it scripture myself, but you don't have to, you know, you, it does, that doesn't, doesn't mean it's false. So I drew a lot from the book of Enoch, even to tell my story in Enoch Primordial, which is basically the original fall from Mount, uh, to Mount Hermon that the Watchers did and how they first started breeding the giants and how that all began, see? And Enoch, the Bible doesn't say much about him, but he's one of those mysterious folk that Christians and Jews um, have always had such a fascinating mystical interest because it, it just says he was a righteous man and walked with God, and then he basically was not. He was translated into heaven uh, because God took him. Wow, what's that about? What you know? Why was he so holy? What, what's going on? Well, I tried to tell that story in uh, Enoch Primordial um, as best I can, using my sources and filling in with creative license. And, and so that, that's the second novel. But then I go back into the rest of the series. I pick it up after the flood with surprise Gilgamesh immortal that is the surprise in this because most of the books are based off of someone that's in the Bible Uh, and this this is the one guy that's not in there and I I really wanted to talk about this tonight because the epic of Gilgamesh is 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 really interesting yes it is it's the oldest hero story extant hero story that we have and what's so fascinating about it, if you read it, the English translations of it, it reads like a modern movie script. Yeah, it so does. it's very fascinating how much little, how little changes in some ways. And um, yeah, so it's, it's, it is truly a fascinating story. And I've always wanted to retell it in a novel form. And that's not the reason why I wrote it, though. I mean, that was sort of like a, a lucky blessing because what I discovered was there are many different theories that actually do connect Gilgamesh to the Bible. And I'm not, I'm not going to explain why, because I don't want to ruin the, the surprise. Yeah. But I think there's all- this idea that Gilgamesh and Nimrod who built the tower of yeah, Babel might actually be yep. the same person. I've, I've yep, heard this theory there. Yeah. Yep. There are many different theories too about it. So, um, and not only that, uh, so I kind of deal a, a little bit with that. And then, but then also at the end of the Epic of Gilgamesh, what happens is the, that basically, the story of Gilgamesh is is that he's this great and mighty leader, uh, you know, like the, the the mightiest king of Uruk, uh, and this is like in the days shortly after the flood. It says right, right, right. And so he's like one of the first great kings, and there's even he might have even been a giant because it says he was two thirds god, uh, two thirds man, one third immortal, or one third god, two thirds man. And which means he might have been, you know, maybe he was one of those who, who were uh, the offspring of 
the Watchers, and Human, right? And then um, in the book itself, so it tells his journey about, he, he, he kind of, it's like an existentialist sort of novel because he, he sort of says, hey, you know, I've got all these great these riches and all this stuff, but, you know, and he even deals with the gods, but he's, he's, he realizes he's going to die. It's, he faces death and he realizes his mortality. So he seeks for eternal life. He wants to get eternal life. And so he goes on this journey um, and in order to find eternal life. And at the end of the journey, he finds out that the only person who supposedly has eternal life is Noah and his wife who are hidden out on some distant island because the, with, of the immortals and they've been given the secret of immortality. So he seeks them. So that's obviously connected with my storyline, and I bring that in, and I retell the, the epic of Gilgamesh. And if, if you're familiar with the epic, you'll notice that I really stuck close to it, as close as possible, because it's so cool. But I integrated it into this biblical storyline in a way that actually makes sense, and people have, have been loving it. And at the same time, you sort of get a more of a modern storytelling novel uh, retelling of the epic <clears throat> of Gilgamesh. I wanted so to that, ask that you... Ends. I wanted to ask you about because you do some you do a really good job in the the book that compiles all the the appendixes when giants walk the earth, and you do a good job of looking at the flood narrative from the Bible and the flood narrative from the Epic of Gilgamesh, and, and often as it's kind of become popular, especially since that epic was discovered in the 19th century, that to say that the biblical story is actually derives from the Gilgamesh epic. But but you're the first person that I've seen or that I'm aware of. I'm sure there's been other scholarly works about this that kind of says, well, no, that's not necessarily true, that they probably come from the same source, but they're, one is not a copy of the yeah. other. Exactly. Um, and, and, you know, look, I, I, people like to people like to do that so that they can if, – if someone derives a story from someone else, then – it's probably not true, you know, and right, I, I, right. that's just kind of ridiculous because everybody, every historian, even of modern day, uses sources, right? So that doesn't, you know, that's that's not a, that's not an issue to me. So I have no problem if, in fact, I think Moses or whoever wrote the the Pentateuch, uh, the Book of Genesis, um, and I think Moses wrote most of it, but I don't think he wrote all of it. Whoever and and the, and there were editors, so I think that whoever did. They drew from sources, and they even tell you they drew from sources in many places. So um, I would have no problem if they did. But when you look, look close at them, uh, the elements in stories that are the same are, are strong markers for connection. However, when you look at the things that are not the same, those can sometimes be much more powerful markers of disconnection than similarities can be for connections. And, and what I mean by that is, is you know, look. The notion of a flood is, you know, if there really was a worldwide flood, does, wouldn't it make sense that all religions across the earth would have different versions of it? So that's not a problem. Or even if there wasn't, every, every culture is going to know about floods because the floods happen everywhere. So any culture can, up, can come up with a flood story. They don't have to steal it from someone else, right? Sure. And yeah, so when you, when you look into those details, you find that, they're really pretty significant enough that makes you really doubt that they the, – the likelihood is that they both drew from a more ancient source, more than likely, you know. So, yeah, because, right. like, I don't, I don't think that the Genesis text came down from God. So, uh, 
I believe they definitely use sources. But yeah, it's an interesting it's an interesting excursion. And uh, but it is interesting that you know when I say Noah, uh, when I say Gilgamesh is searching for Noah, in in the Babylonian epic of Gilgamesh, he the Noah character is actually called. Um, oh, it escapes my mind. Oh, uh, what is uh, it? Utnapishtim. Yeah, Utnapishtim. Utnapishtim. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and so uh, yeah, he has a different name, but it's very clearly the survivor of the flood. And it's interesting that some scholars pointed out that if you look at the middle of Utnapishtim, the middle of his name has a has the possibility of being Noah within the middle of a name. So that's kind of fascinating, you know. Yeah, it really is. It's interesting how the two cultures intersect there. You know, this this, this is something that I that I do in the series. And again, I come from the background, you know, of of sort of the conservative religious uh, community has always been fearful of mythology because they think that, well, if you show that there's some similarities with myths in the Bible, then that means the Bible's a myth and you can't rely on it and blah, blah, you know. And it's this real fearful approach to the text that I just don't think is 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 really appropriate or, or necessary. There's no problem with with knowing that that uh, you know whatever your religious source is, you you know draws from other sources and and integrates it in its own through its own interpretation of things because we all do that you know and and I think that that's what when when you try to show how all of these things can work together and fit together and sort of, oh, that's where they kind of came from. That's what, how they connected. It helps make sense of that. And, and by knowing the ancient Near Eastern background and finding these connections, it actually makes the, the text, the original text, much more fuller and, and opener and more imaginative, you know? And I think, like I said, I, I have to say, I think a lot of religious people are getting it and appreciating that. Right. Well, that's good. That's, that's a really good thing that they, that they accept that. Um, What's what's the next book in the series? After well, the next, the okay, so after the next one after that is actually um, Abraham Allegiant, and that tells uh, the story of the the main stories that people are going to recognize. Is that tells the story of the Tower of Babel. Okay, and uh, there, you know, in the Bible, there's a possibility that Abraham may have lived during that time period, but it's not clear and it's not likely. But there are some Jewish legends that suggest he, Abraham himself, met and interacted with Nimrod. So I draw from those legends, you know, because that allows me to tell the story cool. And, um, uh, and it ends uh, shortly after Sodom and Gomorrah, another one of those, you know, interesting events that, that occurred. Um, very cl- dramatic, but it's so extreme of an event that I think there's something more meaning going on there behind just... God's cursing these five cities because they're evil and wicked. I think it's extreme for a reason. Extreme on the level of the flood. And so I actually suggest that there may be some more of that same angelic human uh, mix-up, genetic mix-up stuff that was going on in those cities at that time period, which is why God, he said he would never flood the earth again, but that the destruction in those cities is unlike anything he's done anywhere else. Yeah, you make the point in that, that as it says in the Bible, that the men of Sodom lusted after strange flesh, and that's often been interpreted as being that they were homosexual. Right. But you look at it as, and especially this makes sense in the context of the story, because when they see the angels that come to rescue Lot, when they see them, they want to have sex with them. 
And yes. so this is the idea that they're actually what they want to do is they want to mingle with the uh, with the angels. Yes, exactly. And now, what's interesting is in the, the Old Testament tradition, um, it it does focus. It tends to be more of a reference to the uh, the 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 yeah the basic the homosexuality going on there. And there's some other elements of Sodom and Gomorrah, like their inhospitality and stuff. But my point is, is it's actually the New Testament that sort of looks back and adds a new aspect to it that wasn't always in there. And the reason why is because in the intertestamental period, uh, between the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament, a lot of Jewish literature was written that wasn't considered scripture, but it deals with these issues. And they're the ones that bring out these watcher connections and such. So by the time of the New Testament, you read the book of Jude and Peter, uh, I think it's First Peter, and they talk about, they make reference to Sodom and Gomorrah, not just about the judgment, but they make reference to this going after strange flesh thing. And the context there is clearly not homosexuality. Now, that's not to say that it has nothing to do with homosexuality because it, it, it's maybe a whole big part of a package. But what the New Testament is bringing in, it's saying there's more to it than that. There's this supernatural violation that's going on, violation of the heavenly, earthly divide and such. And, and so the New Testament authors are the ones that sort of bring that notion back into the discussion and that's why I went back and retold that story within that context. So I tell the story of Abraham. Now, the, Abraham's cool because he's another one of those guys that we all, if anyone who knows this story, they think of him as an old guy because he lived to be really old, right? Before, he was 100 before he had a kid, right? Right. <laughs> but, you know, you think of him as this old guy with, with sheep and, you know, he's a pastoralist and he travels around looking for a place to live. Well, yeah, he was old, but there's, there's one interesting chapter, Genesis 14, that most people don't recognize. And that was there's a time period where Abraham takes a few hundred of his men and goes to rescue his nephew, Lot, who was captured by this, these armies. And these armies are like five, five cities banded together, right? And so and they capture his nephew. And he goes and, bat, and he hunts them down and rescues his nephew. Well, I'm sorry, but that's not just a sheep herder. That's a guy who's a warrior, you know, so... Abraham too. I have him as a warrior in my story, and I read. I continue to tell that that storyline and how. And of course, you know, in the Bible, Abraham's the father of Jew, of you know Israel, and and that all leads to Jesus and so and Messiah. And so um, he's one of those in the the line of that that bloodline of the Messiah, the the seed of the woman, right? That 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 the bad guys are trying to kill. So in all my novels, you know, you've got these watchers and they're giants and they're trying to find out who's the who's God's chosen man in this generation. Let's kill him and let's stop that bloodline. Right. So so by the time of the promised land, the, the next novels after Abraham Allegiant, it's two novels that are basically part one and two. And they're Joshua Valiant and Caleb Vigilant. And basically those tell the story of. The con Joshua's conquering of the promised land. And I think most people have heard that basic story about how the spies go into the land to find out what it's like. And they come back saying, the land is full of what? Giants. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's like, oh, is this just another oddity? No, there's a reason. This all goes back to Genesis. And, and it even says so in Numbers uh, 13.33, I think. It, it talks about how. The giants in the land, are called, they call them the Anakim. There's various clans, and they give them various clan names. Uh, the Anakim, the Emim, the Zamzumim, or the Zuzim. 
and the Rephaim. And here's why most people don't see the giant stuff in Scripture, because these giant clans are indicated as such in one or two places. But then in other places, you just hear the name. So people don't necessarily know that that's what's being talked about. And that's why, you know, even that back in the time of Abraham, it talks about how these, the, during the time of Abraham, these guys were going around hunting down these giant clans, even, in, even at that time. So by the time of, of the uh, Promised Land, these, these Anakim giants and Rephaim are filling the land of, of Israel, and God basically has Joshua go and hunt down those giants. And this is, this is what brings meaning to a lot of the texts that people always thought was weird. Like, why does he say go and kill every man, woman, and child? I mean, that's, that's weird, you know? Well, he only said that of the specific clans and areas that were full of giants. So there's some kind of genetic thing going on there that's in the bloodline, and it's, and it's unholy. And so they're, it's not, you know, they're going into the land, and this is part of the war of the seed of the serpent. Those, the Nephilim, the giants, are considered seed of the serpent, and that's part of what's going on in that storyline that many people don't, don't catch. They just think of it as, oh, they're just clearing the land out because God gave them the land. No, there's more to it than that. And I tell that story um, in more detail because the book of Joshua tells us, mentions several names of very mighty giant warriors. They're called Shesh- Sheshai, Ahiman, and Talmai, and they're mentioned three times. Whenever the Bible mentions some, someone three times, that means they're really important. But it doesn't tell us any more details. It just tells us who killed them. So I tell the story of those three brothers who are giant Anakims leading the land when Joshua comes in. And they are the ones that are putting up the big fight. And so I try to tell that story of those battles. And by the way, I want to t- stop here and take a break and mention I'm a guy, so I tend to focus on action. But as a matter of fact, I try to put romance in all my novels. And so a lot of women have been loving them too. For instance, I'm very proud of my romance of Abraham and Sarah. I, you know, because they're a very good marriage and a good couple who's struggling through life with being childless, right? And uh, I'm very proud of that because, um, you know, we, we tend to like stories about adultery or failed marriages because drama is interesting. But I, I show what a good marriage can look like in the midst of a world full of bad marriage. And then in the time of Joshua, my favorite character in my whole eight novels, personally, is Rahab. And we all have heard of the story of Rahab the harlot, who she converted to, to, is, to uh, Israel and helped the spies come in to, to, um, uh, to see what was going on in, in um, Jericho. And Jericho was that city with the big, huge walls that God made the walls fall down, right? Well, the, the, the harlot Rahab, she was a harlot who converted. So I tell her story and what, how she came to be. And uh, she's a very strong woman. And uh, she ends up being a key in the bloodline of Jesus. So yeah, uh, telling that story is going to be a really cool thing, too. And, and people have, have loved it and... And um, like I said, I try to have the romance and, and strong women, actually, because I, you know, that even though in the ancient world, men were, you know, obviously it was patriarchal culture, the Bible really brings focus on key women throughout that storyline that uh, whether it's Deborah or Sarah, all the way up to Rahab and even up to Mary. 
Um, and I try to do that in my series as well. I, I want to ask you a question about, and, and this is a question I really think that you could take like a whole show and do this, but, uh, you know, the, the Joshua story, yeah. uh, I've always had somewhat of an issue with the story of what basically, I mean, really what, what you can't paint it as anything else. It's almost like a genocide that takes place there. Right. And there's the almost like, wars. right. There's almost like a justification of yes. this genocide and saying that these were corrupted people and they needed to be done away with. I've always had a problem with that. And I, and I guess maybe it's just more of like my, studies and like the Holocaust and the genocides of the 20th century. And maybe I'm putting uh, current events onto something that happened 3,500 years ago, but yeah. you know, it, do you feel, I, I, and I really just kind of want to be careful with this to say that, was there any, when the, when the Bible was written, was there any kind of like, was this to justify when they would looked back the, and said, okay, this is what Joshua did. Was there, do you think that there could have been any like justification there of saying, okay, this is how we came up on top? Or do you think they even thought that way? Yeah, that look, I think that it's fair to, to wrestle with that issue because I too, yeah. you know, and even though I consider the Bible to be trustworthy, I, there's a lot, I have a lot of doubts and I have a lot of issues with it too. Um, but you know, when- sure, because the thing is, is that you could look at those passages and you could really see how those could be abused. I mean, a good sure. case in point would be something like the Puritans and their idea yes. that they felt that they were the new Israelites. Well, yep. look what they did to the Native Americans. I mean, yeah. And, and, and westward, what was it? Manifest destiny. Yeah. You know, and I and I certainly wouldn't support manifest destiny. Um, so granted, uh but there's a few things that I would just like to throw out to, to reconsider. Uh, we are very, we are, we are moderns in that we, we, we approach history, we approach understanding, and even more our morality and how we understand morality. We often do not realize how much a product of our culture that we really are. So we're, we're blinded to other cultures because we interpret through our own. And, and I think that as moderns, we're very guilty of being imperialistic, meaning will impose our own morals and what we know as, you know, on other cultures without seeking to understand them first within their context. And then a lot of times things are, are better understood. And that is what I would argue uh, we have to approach, certainly with ancient history. Um, we have to start from with understanding their context first, and we might learn to learn a little bit about our own prejudices. So that's the first thing when I when I approach ancient history I, I try to do it that way and that's how I, I approach that particular um, the, the particular case and one, one of the issues of which is is um, uh, well let's see there, there's there's many many ways I'll just keep it to a couple what one thing yeah. would be um, it's a complex thought it really is it is there's and there's a lot of complexity to it number one uh, in the Bronze Age and the Iron Age, um, sorry, but everybody was killing everybody. So the reality is, is to survive, you had to fight back. You had to defend, you had to 
you know, if you wanted to live, you had to be able to, you had to kill everyone. So we live in a modern world that, and, and certainly in West, in Western cultures that are, are more advanced. I mean, obviously in the Middle East, there's barbarism still going on, but you know, we just don't have that. We don't have that violence, you know I mean? No. So we don't understand what it's like to live in a Bronze Age culture of survival. And so, you know, the fact that they killed a lot of people, if you understand it in its original context, it's really not unusual because everybody was. Now, that doesn't make it right, but, but it does help you to understand, well, now, wait a minute. You know, if everybody's doing it, you have to understand within their context, how were they different in how they approached it? You know, and how did they treat? And this is where I would argue that, you know, if you look at the law, the Mosaic laws, part of the amazing things about them was they do reflect some similarities of the culture, but they transcend a lot of the, the laws of the cultures around them. They, in other words, the Mosaic law was much more compassionate, much more. It was building a trajectory that was actually away from the brutality and barbarism, but all the people were barbaric, so you had to work within that original context. But even, even apart from that, there's lastly, my, you know, my biggest personal way that I deal with this issue is, is however you come at an issue like this, a moral issue, you have to be aware of your own prejudices. And so if you assume there is no God, therefore anyone who claims God is obviously delusional or lying, therefore Everyone who claims God tells them to do something is only justifying, right? Well, of course you're going to assume, well, the Jews are doing the same thing. They just said God told them to, to kill everybody, and they did. That's no different than everybody else. But that's assuming your own prejudice, which is that there is no God. But if there is a God, and I'm not saying there is, but I'm just saying if there is, and the claim in the Bible is there is one true God, and the other gods were, manuf were, were lies and, and such, but there is a true God, and he did he does own the earth, and he does have the right to give a land to anybody he wishes. And if he says, these people are evil, they don't deserve it, and I'm going to give you the land, then for you to say that he doesn't is for you to simply say, well, there is no God that exists, and, and, and I know that. And so, you, you see what I'm saying? So there is there's right. this, you have to recognize that, well, wait a minute, but if there is a God and he said it, then that makes him different from all the other claims because just because someone claims God gives you a land and says to kill people doesn't mean that that's true. But if he did, then none of us can say he's wrong because he's God. Now, again, that's all based on faith or not faith, but both sides approach that issue with an assumption. And that's all I'm trying to say is to be aware of your assumption. And, and otherwise, you're going to be just imposing your own limited viewpoint upon understanding history. So that's at least would begin to help to understand the picture, at least from a different perspective. Right. If, if that and makes I, any sense. And I'm sure there's all kinds of different perspectives on that one issue. And like Absolutely. I said, like of course, I said and we could go and on and on about it. You know what I mean? Of course, of course. But 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 if you think about it logically and rationally, yes, of course Muslims are saying the same thing. Their God's the only God in everyone. And yes, yeah. everyone says that. But is there a truth? And if there is one true God and he does say that, then the fact is, is he's right. But, but even, even if you don't, even if you don't take it from the, the, the raw fact of, you know, well, God said so, um, the Bible actually, apart from all that, the Bible does describe what was going on in Canaan at the time. And this is another argument that can be easily made without having to say, 
you know, God said it, so shut up. And that is that the abominations of what was going on in Canaan were so barbaric, offering their children in the fires of Molech. They would sacrifice their children, you know, by the thousands um, in order to protect their land. They would, their sexual perversity was so, you know, incest, everything was going on there. And these are the kind of things that were going on. And so this was a society of such depravity that if you look throughout history, it is very common that um, survivors will start things back up again. And so there is a wickedness and a spiritual demonic wickedness that the Bible talks about. Again, if you believe if you believe this is po- if you don't believe it's possible to have demonic spiritual evil and stuff, then maybe you won't accept this. But it does certainly claim that on a level that is, in my opinion, it's you know it's pretty much wow, yeah, it's really true. I mean, this wickedness is bad, and so um, it's kind of like oh, I don't know, but but it's certainly what how everyone operated, and then that's a whole other thing. It's interesting because there's a whole other angle that that uh, the language of holy wars, where it says we killed every man, woman, and child, it's interesting because there's, there's an entire book on that issue that, that looks at the common language of other cultures, and guess what? They all use the same language. All the ancient Near Eastern cultures would say, we went in, we killed every man, woman, and child. But the facts of history are they didn't. Yeah, and so there's very there is also a strong argument that that is basic military language that just says we conquered and we own the land now. Yeah, so the Assyrians it, were very good about saying that too. Yeah. Yes, and now the Assyrians did kill a lot. Did do or the the Assyrians did some brutality. Right. But the point is, is the language is not as absolute as it even appears, and it doesn't mean it's lying, and it doesn't mean it's false. It just means you have to understand the language the way they used it, and what they meant by it. And when you do, you realize maybe it's not as extreme as we read it because, again, we're reading it through our biased eyes. Right. That's that's a very that's a very good answer, and that's that's the what what I was kind of hoping you would you would go with that. It, it's just still something to me that I still kind of like struggle with. You know, even Fair as enough. even as a Christian, I mean, it's very it's very hard to get kind of that education of. Of realizing that this is wrong, and then you read it, but it's there in your holy book. You know, it's it's one of the things I still really struggle with. But let's talk. Fair a, enough. It's, so do I. Right. Right. Can, right. can I can I just recommend one book though that I sure. I've really found really helpful in dealing with all those kinds of issues in the Bible because this is really big now. The the new atheists they're always ragging on the, all these weird stuff things in the Bible, and and people are starting to attack the Bible and say it's barbaric and stuff. And uh, there's a book called Is God a Moral Monster by Copan, I think is the last name, Is God a Moral Monster. And he, he tries to be faithful to explaining all of these issues. So anyway, right. recommend. Excellent. Okay. I'll, check, I'll have to check that out. Uh, the, real quick, because we're kind of we're we're low on time, but the, uh, the other books in the series are – you have Caleb Vigilant are- and then – and then David Ascendant, and okay. that basically tell the story of David like no one's ever heard it before. This Everyone's familiar with David, right? And we think we know it, but there are mentions of giants by name in who were hunting David. Goliath was not the only one, and they were specifically trying to kill David. What's that about, right? So I right. tell the story of those. There's actually five of them who are part of basically a secret assassin cult of warriors, you know, and... So I tell their story 
um, and, and David's rise. And of course, Dave, King David is the, the ultimate precursor to the Messiah. And then in, in Jesus triumphant, I, you, most people would say, wait a minute, there's no giants in the Gospels. But actually, there are, I argue there, could, there is Nephilim. And the basic premise is this. There's hints of this in the Bible, but you can get a lot of this from Enoch and from other uh, non-biblical sources. So it's a theory, but it's not, you know. And that is that the demons that are really, play a big part in the Gospels and in, in, the, in the ministry of Jesus, why is he casting out the demons? What's the point? Is it just, I'm powerful? No, it's very, very pointed. And it's the conclusion of this whole thing. If the Nephilim were the seed of the serpent fighting against the seed of Eve, the messianic line, the ultimate fulfiller of that is Jesus as the Messiah. He's the ultimate seed of the, of the woman. And wouldn't it make sense that he does the ultimate conquering? Because when Dave, King David comes along, he kills Goliath. But he doesn't, and he kills the Rephaim. And so the physical giants are gone. But the, the book of Enoch and, and basically says that demons are the spirits of the dead Nephilim. And so those Nephilim who are still sort of against God they're in the demonic realm, and Jesus, as the ultimate Messiah, is fighting those in the spiritual realm and casting out those Nephilim from the land, which ties it all the way back to Noah, see? And there's a lot more to, the, to than that, by the way. And I also found in a historical reference to a giant that, that was around the time of Christ, around the, his last couple years, and possibly in the area where Jesus was. So I, yeah, I got that from, the book, from Josephus, the ancient Jewish writer. And I integrate that into the story as well. So my Jesus triumphant novel, you know, everyone's probably done a dozen novels on Jesus, but mine is unlike anything you've ever read because it's all about the spiritual warfare and it concludes all the stuff of the Nephilim, the Watchers, and Christ's descent into hell or into Hades, actually, um, and how he conquers and wins and brings back in victory and it's, it just really shows the spiritual truth in a way that I've never seen done before. And it wraps up this whole storyline in a really cool spiritual way. Brian, I'm going to have to have you back on at some point to kind of explore some of these wider themes. Because a lot of it, like we we're doing the explanation of the of, <laughs> of the of the entire series, but at, at some point I'd love to have you back on to talk about it. But uh, what's next for you? I mean, what are you working on now? And then also, where can people uh, get these books? And also, well, you have it, another book that that compiles the appendices that that I've read that that is very good at explaining some of the themes. Yes, and that was when giants were upon the earth. Basically, at the end of each novel, I wrote an appendix to explain where I got a lot of the historical, mythological, biblical research for people who, wa who wanted to know, because I thought it was so wild, people would go, how did he make this stuff up? I'm like, I didn't. And so, but people were saying they love the appendix as much as the novel. So I decided to take all the appendixes out for those who just wanted the Bible study, the history study, and put it into one book. And that's become one of the best-selling books of the series, and that's called When Giants Were Upon the Earth. All my books are in audiobook format as well as Kindle and paperback exclusively on Amazon. And, but here's the thing. A couple things you might want to write this down, fans. Uh, go to the website, uh, chroniclesofthenephilim.com or gadawa.com, basically, my name. And you can find a whole website of free stuff, cool videos, fantastic artwork of the series, real cool stuff that people will like. And, um, and as well as articles about the scholarly stuff behind what I'm doing. And then also you can sign up for the newsletter 
and get in on freebies and stuff that I that I have coming up. Um, but you buy everything on Amazon, and um, and that's that's where you buy it. But <coughs> excuse me. Lastly, I'll be contacting you actually probably in a month because I've got the two other series I'm working on. But right now, the 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 next series is Chronicles of the Watchers. And um, the first book is ready, almost done. It's called The Dragon King. And it basically tells the story of the first emperor of China. This is around 200 BC. And I found some, I, I wrote it with Charlie Wen, who was the visual director of Marvel Studios. And uh, we found some amazing information that connects uh, the ancient Chinese world that was disconnected from the Western world, but there actually is some connection back to the Tower of Babel and to Genesis in a fascinating way. And so we retell that story again with a little bit of the watcher paradigm and a little bit of fantasy to sort of, you know, make it come alive. And so that's the next book that's coming out and, and the next, uh, the next series, but I'm also simultaneously starting another series, which is called Chronicles of the Apocalypse. All this stuff is at my website. So people want to find out more information, they can go there. You're a busy guy, Brian. You got a lot going on. Well, we're going to have to definitely have you back on to talk about some of this other stuff. And like I said, to talk about some of the, some of the, the deeper themes, some of the deeper meanings. But, uh, thank you so much for being on the show tonight. Uh, we really appreciate you coming on and uh, we're going to close this section out, uh, but stay on the line just for, with us briefly, Brian, we'll be right back on conspiracy normal. All right, guys, we're back on conspiracy normal. And, uh, it's kind of a short but sweet interview. What'd you think about that, Luke? You were um, kind of I, quiet through most of it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not a big Bible guy, as all of our listeners probably know. I'm sure they're probably aware. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh I, I really I liked whenever he was talking about the Nephilim tribes. Like that was pretty cool. You know, he, he yeah. was like naming off the different tribes and and this kind of like little sub story that you have going on in the undercurrent, you know, of the Bible between the lines, you know. There's there's um, all this historical stuff going on, and that that kind of stuff is really interesting to me. Well, I'm sure there's a lot more we could have probably gotten into, and I think part of it was that we were trying to kind of get the idea of what his whole book series was about and what each book was about, what he was hitting. I think if we have him on again, we can kind of talk about some of the wider some of the wider issues involved. What do you think about that, Rob? I I thought it was cool. I like the the fact that it's it's very well anchored in the source material and not just the Bible itself, but he he reached out to everything else from that era because I think that the Bible itself was a compilation of writings and sure, you know, possibly the the best writings of the time and the most you know accurate and representative of the time or whatever. But it was probably edited from a hundred times that much source material. So there's there's a lot of other little yeah. things to pick and choose from, and I, I like the fact that he really did try to. Um, hold true to to all the the stories outside of that, but but keep it accurate to the Bible itself, and then you know, kind of fan fantasize on top of that, right? And I think he was he was like you said, he thought that people were going to have a problem with that, and that oh, a lot of people will, for in, sure. Yeah, I'm sure some people would would have a problem if you put like anything in there, like a like a seder or anything like that. Yeah, and I'm I'm kind of glad that one of the things that. Uh, I was kind of meant to talk about this with Dr. Heiser, and I still like to talk about him with it. Is that, you know, one, like I said, one of the things that I've had a big problem with and that I've struggled with really is this whole idea of what's basically is pretty much genocide in the Bible. And this idea that, you know, the Israelites went in and were commanded to kill men, women, and children and not to leave a trace of them left. And, you know, that's always kind of bothered me. 
like I said. But you know, inside inside on that, Luke, I like to know how you think about that. Uh, here goes some more hate mail. <laughs> here we go. I mean, I when we were yeah we 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 were talking about Molek and uh, throwing kids into the fire. You were giving thumbs up over here. I was. I mean, I, my 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 view on the whole Molek thing is like I I don't even actually think the children were being sacrificed or burned. I think that they meant like purification. Uh, through fire, I, I don't. I don't even actually think that yeah, they were you know, sacrificing children. There's actually some debate over that because I because I looked up uh, the only thing I really looked up on it was like a Wikipedia article, and I I think a good person to ask ask about that would probably be like an archaeologist or somebody that's that's kind of studied that subject. Yeah, whether or not it was like symbolic language or whether it was actually it was I, actually taking place. I think it's symbolic. I'm well, but it's a burning it, man. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it's tough, though, because, you know, I was just reading some articles on um, IFL Science the other day about um, some some of the sacrificing rituals uh, down in Mexico, you know, with the Aztecs and yeah. some some of the new finds, you know, with the bones, uh, the, the surveys and stuff that they that they've done on the bones that they found inside the uh, Temple of the Sun and Tia Tiraquan. Um It's a big word. Yeah. <laughs> right. A but, ton twister, man. <laughs> but uh I, I mean so obviously there were uh these early uh races of people that were very barbaric you know and, and a lot of sacrifices right. and stuff did go, go on but in that particular case i i think they were just like it was a it was a rite of purification for the children yeah that's that's interesting i think it all depends on who you ask about it um we were talking uh during the break and uh, t- turning from this real serious issue to, uh, you actually forgot to uh, talk about something that you did it, on New Year's Yeah, Day. I did. I did. I, I can't <laughs> this believe. This is some I f- real classy stuff here. I can't believe I, I mean, forgot to talk about it. If yeah, you I'd- come to Nashville, I mean, this is the kind of stuff yeah. that you would get to it's- enjoy. <laughs> I-, I had the delight of seeing uh, Mama June from Honey Boo Boo. And uh, <laughs> where and- did you see Mama June from Honey Boo Boo? <laughs> Deja Vu. <laughs> Deja Vu, the strip club. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I was hoping that Mama June now, would strip too, but okay. So she wasn't taking it all off. No, no, she was just at a table signing autographs. <laughs> but but uh, Sassy Cassie was the star of the show. <laughs> and she's uh the one of the she is the shortest stripper in the world at <laughs> at, at like what two two foot something like almost three feet. <laughs> <laughs> I I didn't know rather to be rather to be turned on or I don't know there's a there's a little deformation going on there you know if you, I guess if you're drunk you have you have your beer goggles on you can look past it but you got to have really big beer goggles right because you got to make sure you're looking in the right you got you're looking down <laughs> and then and then me and me and Debo know oh. one of the one of the showgirls that works there. <laughs> she, oh, she, she took a bunch of pictures with her and stuff after the show. <laughs> Very nice pictures. <laughs> uh, I'm sure they will. And I don't think so, they'll be up on our site, but <laughs> it's always always a pleasure to see someone we know strip along <laughs> along with the world's smallest stripper. <laughs> By the way, that laugh is Adam. Yeah, that's it's all it's always classy, and I know I know that's, you love it. That's world famous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my laugh is the best. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
All right, guys, I think that's probably where we're going to call it tonight. Uh, next week, we're going to be back and we're going to have uh, another screenwriter in Hollywood, as I mentioned before. And this is Dan Gordon. And we're going to, Dan was uh, not only a screenwriter in Hollywood, he's written a couple of movies like uh, Passenger 57 and a few other movies from that uh, others may know. We'll get into that next week. But, uh, He's written a book called Day of the Dead, and this is not about zombies. This is about uh-huh. what's the situation in Gaza. And I really want to kind of get his idea of what's going on with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and what Israel's goals are, what its wants, what its concerns are, because he used to be a member of the Israeli Defense Force. And guy's got a lot of experience, and there's a lot to talk about in this one. So uh, I'm really looking forward to that next week. But uh, unless there's anything else we want to talk about, we'll call it a night. Tumbleweeds. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. We're going. We're super stoked about 2016. And uh, Debo, thanks for joining us tonight. Yeah, thanks, man. Thank you for letting me come. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, guys, we will be back here next week on Conspiranormal. It's more of the fact that we're not allowed to go longer. So listen to the tale I tell Gods and monsters, death and hell And how his friend and he who fell Once upon a time Gilgamesh the hero Wished that he could build a wall Make it strong and sturdy So that it would never fall So he made the men to work The women to his beck and call They wished that he Influenza down he went, so Gilgamesh his clothes he rent, and then he sang this song.
death. Oh, death, won't you spare me over till another year? Well, what is this that I can see with ice-cold hands taking hold of me? I am death, come to take you home where your drink is dirt and your bread is stone. I'll fix your feet till you can't walk. I'll jam your jaw till you can't talk. I'll flay the flesh off of your bones and worms will crawl inside your nose. Oh, death. Oh, death. Won't you spare me over till another year? You'll be mesh for searching for eternal life. For ancient Tutankhamen and his ageless wife. Make me immortal, please, he said. He fell asleep. They baked some bread. They told him where the life tree grew. Soup and soul, and now he's doomed. One day he will be entombed. At least I have my wall. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to fifteen hundred dollars back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet when you register with BetMGM. You'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to fifteen hundred dollars back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. Twenty one plus and present in Ohio. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call one eight hundred GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.